This program is produced by listener-supported KFUO Radio. Your support during KFUO share is vital to the continuation of great programs like this one. If you appreciate this program, please consider what you can give to support the ongoing ministry of KFUO Radio and this program. You can make a gift sending a text to the number 41444. Enter KFUO as the message. You'll get a text right back that walks you through the steps on your phone and it takes just a minute or two. You can also visit KFUO.org and click on the donate button or give Mary a call at 314-996-1518. Thanks for listening and supporting KFUO Radio. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, April 19th, we are studying Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. Still on that first day of the week, two of Jesus' disciples are walking to Emmaus. They're talking about everything that's happened when Jesus joins them to open their eyes to who he is and what he's done. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. Pastor Heidi serves at at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He's also one of the hosts of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken. Pastor Heidi, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Glad to be back as always. And hallelujah, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Hallelujah. It's a joy to be with you on this Easter Tuesday. Pastor Heidi, we're on the road to Emmaus today. Give us some context in Luke's gospel that'll bring us up to speed for this text. Well, I mean, (laughs) the obvious context is the resurrection, right? Uh, Because (laughs) this is chapter 24, getting to the end of the book. Jesus has risen. The women have come to find the empty tomb. And people are kind of wondering where Jesus is. And so on their way to uh, the two of the disciples on their way to Emmaus are visited by Jesus, even if they don't quite know who he is right away. So that's kind of the, the main context of, of of this passage. That's right. I mean, if if you don't know that Jesus has risen from the dead, this text is going to confuse you, much like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus who don't realize that Jesus is risen from the dead. And so they're slightly confused when they talk to Jesus. So, okay, he's risen from the dead. We know that from the previous text. In terms of Luke's gospel as a whole, though, we see Jesus on the road here and his disciples on the road. There's a pretty big theme in Luke that Jesus traveled. There was that long section where he was journeying to Jerusalem. Here we see him on the road again. seems like Maybe Luke's doing something with this travel thing in his gospel. That's entirely possible. Although if you were seeing, you know, his traveling towards Jerusalem, at this point, he's now traveling away from Jerusalem, right? True. So, <laughs> I mean, if if that, that focus to go to the cross, which was kind of the main focus of, you know, the road and going towards Jerusalem, uh, has now changed to going out from there, so you could see... What Luke is about to do in the book of Acts, of course, which is to have the gospel go out from Jerusalem into all the world. So Jesus has kind of turned around and is going the other way. 
<laughs> that's right. That's right. And of course, they're not going to leave Jerusalem just yet, at least in the, the full narrative. They're going to end up back at Jerusalem by the end of this text. But even just thinking about these two disciples in particular and their lack of understanding as to what has just transpired in Jerusalem, Jesus is going to teach them while they are on the way. There's some, I think, parallels to what Jesus did in his journey to Jerusalem, outside of which way he was going. While he's journeying, he's teaching. While these two disciples are journeying, again, he's going to be teaching, which, and and not to get too, like, this sounds kind of out there, but as we journey through this life, Jesus teaches us. Something like that. Sure. No, I I think you could apply it that way, certainly as an extension of the text. Um, But but when we're dealing with our own, I guess you could say, journey out of Jerusalem into all the world sort of a thing, we do need to be made disciples and all that. Of course, I know that's Matthew's language, but I believe in the harmony of the gospel, so I'm going to bring it in. (laughs) That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. I mean, I think Luke, Luke does the same thing. It's going to start in Jerusalem, and then it's going to go out from there. And and I don't know that we don't get to talk about that in our text as particularly as say in the next text and then into Acts chapter one. But that is that is the same direction that sure. that the gospel that what's happened in Jerusalem is going to go forth into all the nations. And so we're going to see that as the gospel continues today. Again, we've got these two disciples who are on the way to Emmaus and Jesus is going to join them. I think it's a pretty familiar text. It shows up on the Sunday, which Sunday does this show up in the, are you the one year lectionary? I am. Pastor Heidi? Yes. Which does this one show up each year? It doesn't. Oh, it doesn't. No. Really? Yep. Oh, okay. So I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Well, it shows up at least once in the three year lectionary. And I think maybe it shows up on Easter Monday or Easter Tuesday. Maybe that's what I'm I'm thinking. Well, maybe I'm just thinking of Sunday, but I don't remember preaching on it in the one year. So Okay. Well, you get a chance to preach on it a little bit today, Pastor. That'll work. So <laughs> X Luke twenty four, beginning at verse thirteen. That very day, two two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, They came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That takes us through verse 27 of the text, and we'll pause there. So, Pastor Heidi, I'm I'm looking here in the lectionary just briefly, 
And it looks like this text is appointed for Easter Monday. I was just going to mention that, which is there you go, which is probably so my mistake, but uh, which is probably why I didn't think of it because I've never preached Easter Monday. So there you go. That's okay. That's okay. I don't know how many churches do have Easter Monday, but if you do, you've heard this text before. It's a familiar one, I think. I think we we learn it in Sunday school often as well. So set the scene for us, Pastor Heidi. We've kind of given a little bit. These two disciples are journeying out of Jerusalem. They're on the way to Emmaus. Just give us the the context of set that scene for us where they're headed. Sure. So these two disciples uh, headed out of Jerusalem. They're I mean they're probably just leaving the city because of the the tensions that are going on, and you know maybe even going home in some case. Uh, some in this case because I don't know if I don't think we've met Cleopas and the other disciple before. Right. I think this is the only place where we meet them. Am I am I right in that assumption? That that's correct. And especially in Luke's gospel, there is there are some that have suggested that the Cleopas that's mentioned here mm-hmm. is the same Clopas who's mentioned in John 19. There's a, a Mary wife. Let me let me turn to that passage real quick. I, okay. I learned this actually in, in researching this. So in John 1925 at Jesus cross are his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, which is it perhaps is the Semitic form of okay. the Greek name Cleopas. And some have suggested that this is the same person, meaning that this Cleopas potentially is Jesus' uncle. And, and some then have gone on to suggest that on top of that, the person walking with Cleopas, who Luke leaves unnamed, is perhaps his son named Simeon, who apparently was also later bishop in the Jerusalem church. Now, whether or not any of that is is quite, I mean, we can say that for certain, I'm, I don't think so, but that's potentially some connections that I learned in preparation for this. Okay. I mean, that all hinges on Cleopas being the same as Clopas, though, which is Correct. not proven. I mean, that's, that's correct. So, it's correct. I, I like it. I mean, it, it sounds good, but I think we just kind of have sure. to leave it at that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But uh, to your point, this is the first time and the only time that we meet Cleopas by name in the gospel, according to St. Luke. Right. Yeah. And so they're on their way, probably like say to, to head home or to at least get out of the city. And the two of them walking together are met by Jesus. I mean, that's that's really the the, the, the context, I mean, the scene that we've been set up here, but they don't know that that's it's right. Jesus. So. Okay. And that's, that's one of the key points to this text is that Jesus begins to walk with them. And as Luke records it in verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. What's going on there? Yeah. I mean, this is, this has to be a case of where God is intentionally withholding the recognition of these men from Jesus. Uh, because, you would think that if they are his disciples, they should know what he looks like. You know, you'd think they would be able to recognize him at sight. But the fact that they don't, to me, suggests that God has intentionally withheld their recognition for the time being, obviously to make a point. And this and this sort of thing happens actually in other places in the scriptures, too. Um, I'm thinking like in Old Testament terms where the angel of the Lord, for example, is not recognized as being the angel of the Lord. Um, until a certain point when he is revealed, like with uh, Manoah, when he's announcing the birth of Samson, they don't recognize that he is the angel of the Lord. So, I mean, there is this sometimes where God withholds the recognition of who this visitor is 
uh, for a purpose that is about to be revealed in the text. So this is not unheard of, but we shouldn't think that they're just being absent-minded or anything. This is, God is doing this intentionally. Sure. So when we read that that passive, their eyes were kept Mm -hmm. from recognizing him, we should understand that they were kept from recognizing by God that that he's the agent involved here. And to your to your point about this isn't the first time it's happened, certainly not in the scriptures and even within the gospel according to St. Luke, back in chapter 18, the third time that Jesus told his disciples about his upcoming suffering, death and resurrection, Luke 18:34 says that they understood none of these things and this saying was hidden from them. Not quite the same verb, but a similar way of speaking mm-hmm. that for a, for a purpose, God withheld this information or this realization at the time to make a point. So, and I know we'll talk more about this as the text continues. But what's what's the reason that God would keep their eyes closed at this point? Well, I think it's because He intends for them to recognize Him in a very specific moment, which is what we're going to see later in the text that we haven't quite got to yet. Because he wants to make it very clear through what he's doing here, how we are to recognize Jesus, um, especially through his word and through the things that he is doing. So I I do think that this is not only for their own sake, uh, for Cleopas and the unnamed disciple, but especially for our sake and how we should recognize Jesus and how the scriptures speak of him and how we are to recognize him. Yeah. And, and as we as you said, there's a whole section of the text where their eyes will be open that we haven't yet looked at. But the part that we've got that we have read already is involved in that recognition. It's a I mean, these two halves of the text do very much go together, both the teaching and then, as we'll see, the eating that will come later where their eyes are finally opened. So these two guys are walking on the way to Emmaus. Jesus starts walking with them. This is one of those points when I talk about the exaltation of Jesus, that now as a human being, Jesus fully and always makes use of his divine power. This is one of the examples that I often use. When Jesus starts walking with them, he doesn't run up behind them like I would do, huffing and puffing, saying, hold on a second, guys, let me catch my breath. He's just walking with them all of a sudden. You know, I mean, he's one moment, the two of them are walking by themselves, and the next moment, he's there. And he strikes up this conversation. I, I just, I don't think we should miss that, the way that Jesus appears, particularly in light of the way we're going to see him leave later. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm not denying that he certainly appears, you know, in his exalted nature, but they're not so shocked by his appearance. True. So, you know. At least as far as we know. Well, at least as far as you know. I mean, it's, as, yeah. as it reads, they just, it's like they meet this guy on the road. And they, you know, they're, they're telling him what's going on kind of a thing. So maybe, maybe he appeared, you know, out of their vision and then came up to them kind of a thing. You know, I think that would certainly be an appropriate, a good way to look at it. So sure. But sure. Sure. Yeah. But they're, they're, so they're not surprised that he's there. Right. He, he strikes up a conversation as naturally as he could. What, Hey, what are you talking about? Tell, tell me about it. And this is where we start to see their lack of understanding. So Take us into the the way that they begin. That's where we learn Cleopas' name. The way that they describe the events that have just happened. Right. So Cleopas basically says, all the things that have happened in Jerusalem concerning this Jesus of Nazareth. And he even goes on to give a pretty, 
I, I would say a pretty high view of who Jesus is. Okay. Mm-hmm. He says, you know, he's a man who is a prophet um, and he was mighty in deed and word. And then all the things that happened to him, right? The chief priests and rulers delivered him up and they crucified him. And we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So, I mean, Cleopas has this idea, this very high idea of who Jesus should have been, at least in his own mind. And he's sad because his expectations have been disappointed. Uh, He expected him to be a a king of sorts, an earthly king. I mean, which just goes to show that, you know, how the disciples continuously misunderstand who Jesus is. But we'll get to that in a second. But I mean, his his point being that, you know, all these things have happened and it's been three days and we remember him vaguely saying something about three days. I mean, that's kind of how he's he's going at it here. And the women say that, you know, they found it empty, but we didn't see him. And we're just not really sure what to make of it. So Cleopas is just generally sad. He's generally confused. He's generally upset at what has happened, but he does not yet fully understand what it all means. Mm, yeah. So what, I mean, what's he missing? What, why, like you said, he's got a pretty high view of Jesus and he's quite right on some things in a very, I have to admit when you, I think for us as readers of Luke, that it, this text is, is kind of funny because on the one hand, you, you watch Cleopas and you can understand why he doesn't get it. But the things that he says are just so full of irony that, you know, like you're talking to the guy and, and you don't understand. And, and even the way we kind of skipped over this, but the like, Cleopas says, hey, are you the only guy who doesn't know what's happened? Like, how, how could you not know what's happened? And, and of course, he's the one that it all happened to. There's just this, this irony. So it's, I, I find it somewhat humorous. But what's I mean, what's what's Cleopas missing? He's got some things in place. But what's what's the key thing that he's not understanding? Well, I mean, Jesus himself will say, you you know, you don't understand that Jesus was that the Christ is supposed to suffer. He has not seen Jesus for the truth of what he has come to do. He has only seen Jesus for what he wants him to be. And for that reason, he not only misunderstands what Jesus has done, he also misunderstands the scriptures themselves, which is what Jesus is now going to correct. But yeah, so he, because of his misunderstanding, because of his false ideas of what Jesus was supposed to be doing, he's kind of missed the whole point. Mm. Yeah, no, he, I mean, he definitely has missed the point. And, and what's funny is he... He he gets the point to a degree, but he's missed how Jesus has done it, particularly what stands out to me in, in verse 21. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. It, you you were right to hope that, Cleopas. The fact is, he did it. Right. <laughs> and, and that's, I mean, that's the, he understands, it seems, and I think this is probably true of all the disciples, they, they know that Jesus is the guy. But the how he's going to be that guy, how he's going to be this savior, this Christ, has continued to go over their heads and even as, as we've said, be hidden from them. They really, they have to see it all take place. And then I, I think not just they have to see it take place, but they have to have it taught to them, which is, which is what Jesus is going to do for these two men here. He's actually going to, to teach it to them. And man, the, the irony there at the end of his, his words in verse 24 you know, some of those who are with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Jesus is standing right in front of them. 
right. they don't actually see him. Okay. Again, the irony. But but I, I think you know, to this to this point, they can't see him rightly at this point. They they need to be able to see him first in the scriptures. And then, as, as we will see in the, the rest of the text, in the breaking of the bread, in order to truly behold the man who's standing in front of them. I think we should also point out here that the disciples are not going to fully understand the kingdom, even after the ascension, until the coming of the Holy Spirit, who will teach them all things. So I, Pentecost is, is something that has to happen before, they, before it finally clicks for them. Right, right, yeah, and we we should never forget that all. And I, I think, I mean, all of this is what we're reading today, and what we'll look at tomorrow in in the rest of Jesus' post resurrection appearances in Luke, is Jesus is preparing his disciples for that for that day of Pentecost, so that when the Spirit is given, everything that he's already begun, like you said, just it clicks it it it's put into place. He's, he's laying the groundwork for that work of the spirit. And that's when everything comes together and they do quote, get it and begin to proclaim it so clearly as, as we'll see when we get into the book of Acts after we finish Luke. So he's, he's laying the groundwork for all of that here. Cleopas and his unnamed companion, they are sad because they don't realize what has happened. Now, how does Jesus respond? Take us into his words. Okay. Well, he kind of, he reproves them, first of all. You know, he actually upbraids them a little bit and says, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that uh. the prophets have spoken. You know, he he's, I mean, he's kind of saying, you guys, you should have gotten this. <laughs> it's almost like, right. it's almost like he's saying it's, it's, it's obvious, guys. Come on, pay attention. <laughs> maybe maybe he's an exasperated teacher at this point i'm not well, sure and what's and again just the 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 humor of it is that jesus has gone from this curious inquirer who you know just started walking hey what's what are you talking about tell me about it and all of a sudden now he's saying you guys how could you be so silly i mean it's just again that the irony that i find it humorous that he's suddenly just just like that he switched roles and now he's the teacher sure <laughs> yeah, and I and I'm not trying to say that Jesus is joking around or anything like that. I'm just saying. Well, me neither. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. So, but but the point being that he's saying, you guys, you should see this for what it is, because the scriptures themselves reveal it. Okay, and going back into the Old Testament, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, it says, verse 27, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He is giving them the key to understanding Jesus, to understanding his role in the Old Testament and what the Old Testament has said about what he has what he has come to do and what he has done. And, and I mean to use the language of Paul, I would say Jesus is removing the veil of Moses in this case. Mm. You know, he is taking away that veil which was hiding the glory of God from Israel. And now that the veil is being taken away, they are able to see the Old Testament for what it is, a proclamation so, of Jesus. Okay, so so talk more about that, because this is this is such an important thing that not only does Jesus do it here with these two men on the way to Emmaus, but he's going to open up the minds of all his disciples in the next text to understand the Old Testament. How, I mean, how how does Jesus, What what's his point? Tell us about this opening of the Old Testament that he begins here. Sure. Well, like I say, with the veil of Moses in place, again, I'm using Paul's language here. Uh, what is happening is, is that they are unable to see 
Jesus for, for what he has come to do. This is why they have their misunderstanding of his mission. Okay, this is why they think that he is going to redeem Israel by, in their minds, becoming some kind of earthly king, you know, establishing the kingdom in that way. They are thinking entirely in those terms because of the veil of Moses, which is still blinding their eyes. So what Jesus is doing then is he's showing that everything that has happened is in perfect, you know, accordance with the scriptures. This is how it is always meant to be. And now that the veil is being taken away, they can actually see that for what it is. So they can see him, you know, in all those places where he is present in the Old Testament. Clearly, you can see the the prophecies of the Old Testament that speak about him and about what he has come to do. Clearly, you know, this is not something that is just hidden away. This is something that is actually being revealed to them in this moment. Now, at, at this moment, it's, I mean, and I, I don't want to read into the text, but given what you were saying earlier about Pentecost really being the day when everything clicks for these disciples, at this moment, I kind of picture Cleopas and his unnamed friend sort of nodding their heads along, but with a little bit of a, a confused look still, scratching their heads like, <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, I, I guess that's true. I mean, something like that, sure. you know, that Jesus is, he is opening their minds here. But again, not to the point that there's something like, oh, yes, I'm going to you know, open up to the book of Joshua and I'm going to find it just like Jesus is. He's just laying that groundwork here at the, right now. Right, right. And we should understand that. Yeah, I mean, the, the full unveiling will not come until Pentecost. But the point being that, you know, Jesus, as you say, lays the groundwork. He sets it out. He shows that these things spoke of him. You know, this is. Yeah, I mean, go ahead. Well, like this is this is the whole point of the Old Testament. The, these these verses here at the end of Luke in chapter twenty four, again, both in this text and in the one that's coming, I think are so foundational for our use of the Old Testament as Christians that we don't read. Well, we I mean we read the Old Testament for the history that's there of the way that God has acted in history to save His people, but we read them because they're a Christian book. This is this is the book that tells us of Jesus, and I I don't I mean I think we we as Christians just have to hold on to this text anytime we open up the Old Testament so that we would read it rightly still today. Right. Well, and and, and it's important to see here too. That, you know, when we meet Jesus in the Old Testament, you know, he, he shows up in places that we may not expect him to. You know, he is everywhere. You know, he is the rock that followed them, according, that followed Israel, according to, to Paul. He is the, the commander of the army of the Lord, since you mentioned Joshua. You know, he is the angel of the Lord. He is the one who led his people through the wilderness. He is the one who led them, you know, with the, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. He is the one who went before them into Canaan. I mean, he is everywhere in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament also speaks of him. So yeah, this is not some sort of appropriated thing that we're just borrowing because we need it. This is the testimony of Jesus. That's why I love the Old Testament so much. So That's right. Yes, that's right. We as Christians should know the Old Testament well because that book does testify to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to keep looking at this text from Luke 24 on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi today. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, April 19th. We're studying Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35 with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. He is pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. Pastor Heidi, prior to the break, we were talking about Jesus opening the minds of these two disciples to understand the Old Testament, that it's all about him. And I think we can say a little bit more. Jesus is, I think, more specific than that. It's not just all about him. Hey, look, Jesus did some cool stuff in the Old Testament, but it's about his suffering. He says it's necessary that his suffering happen according to the Old Testament. It's it's not just about what he did, say, you know, I mean, like, for example, the Exodus. There's there's an Old Testament account that you need to know. That Exodus is meant to point us very specifically to Jesus, his death, his resurrection that he's accomplished now in Jerusalem. Right. And yeah, I mean, and when I say that, you know, he's everywhere in the Old Testament, we have to keep that in mind as well. But he does point to the Old Testament as proof of everything that has happened to him. So, for example, you might turn to the major prophets, um, most famously like with Isaiah and the suffering servant, you know, that the he is going to suffer on our behalf and suffer for the for our sins. I mean, that's very clear, like in Isaiah 53, for example, and, you know, the and other passages like that. So yeah, absolutely. Jesus points to those kinds of places in the scriptures as proof of everything that has happened is exactly what was supposed to happen. And that's what uh, Cleopas and the unnamed disciple haven't figured out yet. Talk a little bit about, and we've, we've mentioned this previously, but I think it's worth a reminder. Talk a little bit about the word necessary here. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? Why does Jesus use that language when he speaks about his death and resurrection? Well, I think for two reasons. Uh, the first reason being that it's necessary according to the scriptures. Uh, the Old Testament said that it was going to happen, so it has to happen. Otherwise, God is a liar. I think that's one very important aspect of it. And I think the other part of it is that it's necessary because this is the payment for our sins. This is what has to happen for us to be to be saved. So it's kind of a, you know, the scriptures predicted it's going to happen, but also that Jesus is going to become, well, to use Old Testament language again, the scapegoat. He is going to become the one who bears our sins, the sacrifice, the lamb, you know, all of those kinds of terms. This is necessary because this is our salvation. So Jesus, again, teaches his disciples, this is necessary. He shows them, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interprets to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. One one thing that I I like to talk about with this text, and I I believe I got this from a sermon that Martin Luther preached on it. Luther makes the point, of, of all the things that Jesus could have done after he rose from the dead, this is one of the things that he chooses to do, that that he goes to, t- to these two disciples in their sadness, in what's, you know, they had hoped, but now that hope has been dashed. He goes to them 
to teach them and to reveal himself to them. And that I think that's a just a, a marvelous picture of who our Lord is that, you know, if it were me, I, I might have chosen to do something else. I could have bragged at the people who put me on, on the cross, right? Going for the vengeance aspect of it. Jesus doesn't do that. He goes to these two disciples and the way Luther phrased it is as if he had nothing better to do. <laughs> what, what a marvelous <laughs> thing that, that Jesus actually has nothing better to do <laughs> than to come to us poor, miserable sinners and reveal himself in the scriptures. That's a marvelous thing that's always stuck to me with this text. Sure. Well, and, and with that same idea, you know, isn't it interesting that Jesus could have just showed up and said, like, I'm here and they recognize him and they realize oh, that he's yes. alive, but he chooses to to teach them the scriptures. He chooses yes. to point them yes. to the word. I think. Yes. And, and yeah, well, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I don't think we can overlook that is what I was going to say. I think you're right. And this, this, I, I had thought of this too. It, it reminds me of the, the words that Abraham speaks to the rich man at the end of Luke 16, where, you know, the rich man wants, La, wants Lazarus to go back to his brothers and, and tell them so that they avoid hell. And Abraham says, no, nah, he can't do that. And, and they need to listen to the word. And, and the rich man says, well, if someone rises from the dead, then surely they'll believe. And Abraham says, oh, well, no, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. And I've, I've always thought about that in terms of scoffers, but it, it proves true, I think, for these two men as well, that had Jesus just shown himself, oh, hey, look, it's me. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay, it is. That's not what they needed. They needed to believe because of the word, much like that. Can, what, what Abraham says to the rich man there in, in Luke 16. Right. Just as we believe because of that word. Yes. Yes. So, I mean, that's yes. that's kind of a, another key point there, too. You know, Jesus shows that this is the case so that when we who have not seen come to read that word, we can still be assured that these things are true. Yes. Yes. I mean, these these two men, Cleopas and the other disciple who's with him, they end up believing in the risen Jesus in the same way that we believe in the risen Jesus, just as we learn of him through the word. So did these two disciples. And then as we will see, as we continue reading the text, just as they recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread, we get to recognize him there as well. Any more on that first half of the text before we read the rest? No, nope, right. I think, I think we're good. All right. So we're picking up again at Luke 24, verse 28. Jesus has just finished interpreting to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread, and blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. That's the rest of our text for today. That takes us through Luke 24, verse 35. So again, Pastor Heidi, set this scene for us. They get to Emmaus. What, what's the interaction with Jesus and these two men? Yeah, I mean, Jesus kind of gives the an impression that he intends to keep going, even though it's toward evening, you know, towards the late, pretty late in the day, you would expect them to pull in somewhere and, and stay for the night. 
But Jesus in, is giving this impression that he wants to go further. But the disciples say, you know, stay with us, eat with us, come in and be with us kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And then in, in that um, meal, which they share together, uh, that's when they finally do recognize him. But do we, I mean, how do we want to break this down? I mean, there's, there's a lot to cover here. So, well, I, I, I mean, I've got some thoughts, but I, I don't want to steal any thunder of yours. I, I always enjoy pointing out that the invitation that's given by the disciples to Jesus, this stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent, finds its way into a lot of our hymnody and liturgy. You know, abide with me, fast falls the even tide mm-hmm. or what or I mean, this this shows up in, in many of our hymns, this, you know, stay with us, Lord, abide with us. Uh, that that's Lord Lord Jesus Christ with us abide for around us falls the even tide. I, that's one thing that I I always like to point out with this text. But the so I mean, that that's something. Where what else do you want to pick up? Well, I mean, when we use that that you know stay with us kind of invitation that they are giving to Jesus here, even though they don't recognize him at this point yet, that's something to keep in mind. Um, I do think that we, I mean, the, the way that the hymns have appropriated that is basically, you know, that invitation which we are calling to the Lord, you know, that kind of invocation, come be with us, you know, because we are, we need you, that sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that's an important thing to remember here, too. Um, you know, we can use it in that way, certainly. And Jesus does go in to be with them, just as he chooses to be with us. Hmm. Yes, and and that's where I mean the the text then makes a similar turn to the way the text turned in the first half. Jesus started off as the questioner and then turns into the teacher. Here he's acted as if he's going to go farther, and he's first the one invited, but then suddenly now he's going to be the host of this meal. Which is there's some similarities I think to, to Christian worship that we can draw from that, and and again this text as a whole we've got teaching and eating together. So I, hopefully I've put a few things out there for you, Pastor Heidi, to pick up on. <laughs> well, I mean, I, you probably just want to talk about the bread here is, is what you're getting at, right? Yeah, let's, well, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, we, there's lots to talk about, as you said. So sure, let's talk about the bread. All right. Well, they're sharing bread at the table. And, you know, it says that he takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it, he gives it to them. Their eyes are opened in that moment and they recognize him and he vanishes from their sight. And they will also point, you know, when they get to the other disciples, to this moment as the moment that he is finally known to them. And it is something about this moment that is finally the, the you know, the the hiddenness is taken away. The veil is taken away. So they see Jesus as Jesus. He's no longer the stranger. He is now, you know, their Lord as they knew him kind of a thing. But, I mean... What kind of, I mean, what kind of things do we want to draw from this, I guess, is the question. Well, you tell me. I'm, well, see, and the reason maybe, what? I'm hesitating a little bit because um, I know the, the natural place to go to for us is to say, like, the Lord's Supper. Okay. Um, but the only reason I kind of hesitate with that is because there's a lot of things going on here that if you take them to the full conclusion, I, I don't know if that's where we want to go. Does that make sense? Okay, I think so. So, and and just to to try to connect some of these dots and and try to be as clear as we can. One of the reasons that we would perhaps connect this text to the Lord's Supper is because this way of speaking, the breaking of the bread, mm-hmm. is used elsewhere in scriptures, particularly in Acts chapter two, where it does seem to refer to the 
what we call the Lord's Supper, yes. Holy Communion, the sacrament of the altar. It's the same language. And so is that enough? Now, as you said, I this is the way that I, I generally approach this, that this is not going to be the primary text for drawing direct doctrine of the Lord's Supper from. Right. This isn't the, as we say, it's not the seat of doctrine. We start always with the words of institution. What did Christ say the Lord's Supper is? And so when we look at this text and make applications to the Lord's Supper, we don't want to let something like an implication, if we can say it that way, we don't want to let an implication from this text override clear texts from, say, the words of institution or clear instructions that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. We, we don't want to let this override those things and somehow trumpet. Okay. Right. That, at least that's, that's the way. But having said that, are there things that this does shed light on what the Lord's Supper is and what it does that it, it adds to our understanding? I, I think we can say that. Does that make sense? It does. And I guess like, the, let's say one of those implications, for example, uh, the, there's only bread here for one thing. So sure. it can't be, you know, the, the full supper because you need both bread and the wine. Um, the other thing about it too, is that as soon as they recognize him, he disappears. Is that really an implication we want for the Lord's Supper? <laughs> well, so you know, here's, you know I mean? here's some of the, yes, I, I do. And so the, as you say, the absence of the cup here, I, I think is one indication that we, again, don't want to take this as, hey, Jesus celebrated Holy Communion with these two men there in Emmaus, because right. the, the cup is absent. And Jesus very clearly said, take and eat and take and drink in his words of institution. Having having said that, though, I think there is something to the fact that the moment that they recognize him is in the breaking of the bread when Jesus sits down and eats with them, does say something to us about what Holy Communion does for us as Christians, that when we partake of this meal that Jesus has given in the bread and wine in which we receive his body and his blood, there is a, how do I say this? There is a recognition of who Jesus is and what he has done that opens our eyes in a way that adds to the teaching we've already received. I, I hope I said that clearly. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Paul very clearly states in 1 Corinthians that if we do not recognize him in the Lord's Supper, that, you know, we that we sin against him. So there is this sense in which we recognize Jesus in the bread of the Lord's Supper, in, in the wine of the Lord's Supper, that this is his body and blood. Absolutely. That's, that is certainly there. And I think we can see in a passage like Emmaus, you know, something of that, that, you know, it is in this moment that they recognize him for who he is, that, you know, the, the fullness of who he is. But I also do right. think that it's interesting that, what do they say right afterwards? Our, our hearts, They talk about their hearts burning. Hearts burning, and he opened to us the scriptures. So they're pointed back to the word. So, yes, I'm just, I don't know, yes. maybe I'm too cautious. I don't know. Well, <laughs> and so to your, to your point about Jesus vanishing, and I, I don't remember, I've, this isn't original to me. Someone else pointed this out to me, and I found it helpful. That the part of the reason Jesus vanishes here is because because they have recognized him in the breaking of the bread, they don't have to see him like in the same way that you and I would see each other, which I, I think is there is something to that for the church today. Sure. Because we recognize Jesus is truly present with his body and his blood in the supper, 
we know he's with us, even though we can't see him in the same way that these two men had seen him previously. That the the breaking of the bread, and, and when I say it there, I mean it in the sense of Holy Communion. Because Jesus is present with us in Holy Communion, even though we can't see him, we know he's there. And, and I, that is something that I, I think the vanishing aspect of it does communicate to the church and gives us great comfort in that. Well, and like we said earlier, um, that the opening of the scriptures themselves are something that leads us to faith now, even though we have not seen Jesus face to face. So, I mean, we don't need to see him face to face because we have him revealed in the word. We have him revealed in communion. We have him revealed in all, you know, in all the sacraments. I mean, this is how we come to meet Jesus now. So yeah, I think that's fair. Hmm. Well, and, and just the, you know, this is how we come to meet Jesus, that Jesus does put both of these things, or he puts these two things together, the teaching in his word and the eating with him, the supper, that that for us as Christians, we should desire both of those things. And I mean, and this is not to say, of course, that, that someone who has not yet received the Lord's Supper because they haven't been taught that somehow they have less of Jesus. They don't. They still have full Jesus because they've been taught, but those things go together. You know, I mean, and this is the the pattern for the divine service that we have the service of the word, and then we have the service of the sacrament. We hear Jesus teach us who he is, and then he feeds us in his body and his blood. These these two things go together that Jesus desires his church to have him in both of these ways. And I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of the way Jesus speaks to his disciples at that Passover meal where he says how much he's desired, he's earnestly desired to eat this meal with them. He still desires to be with his church in word and in sacrament. And that's, I think, another takeaway from this text for the church today. Sure. Yeah, I can I can go along with that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Pastor Heidi, talk more about this burning of the heart that's going on with, with these two, two men. That's a pretty vivid expression. Uh, burning in the bosom, as it were. Um. It, it is a, a very vivid expression because in the opening of the scriptures and the at least some of the veil of Moses being taken away from them so that they are seeing things clearly, they are there. I think they're starting to feel that a stirring which will come to its full its full fruition, of course, at Pentecost, you know, when the spirit descends with fire and that sort of thing. And, uh, and the church begins. But it is this, this moving of the heart. It is a moving of, of their inmost being to, I mean, to desire these things, to see them for what they are. I, I do think that their faith is being strengthened, and they describe it in the sense of like, you know, that like this fire within them. So I, I like the connection that you made to the day of Pentecost and the flames that appear over the uh, the disciples' heads. I think there's yeah there's a, a foreshadowing of that. How much how much more than on that day when all these gifts come together and as we said earlier things click for them. And I think this is something that that does happen for Christians still today. I don't know. We always put it this way that our hearts burn within us, but there is there's something that happens when we hear the word of God with faith and our eyes are, are open to see Jesus, there's something that happens still today. Absolutely. I mean, do we, do we have a desire for the things of God? That would be our hearts burning, right? Do we have a desire to be built up in the word? That would be our hearts burning. I mean, it is this this movement of, you know, of the spirit within us. And I'm thinking, especially in our terms today, 
um, of using the word, using the sacraments to drive us closer and closer to God so that our hearts are burning in that sense and and driving us forward. I mean, if we don't have this kind of burning, I'm not saying a burning sensation. I'm, that's that's not the right idea here. But not heart, not heartburn. It's not indigestion. That's not what we're trying to get <laughs> at here. But if we don't have a desire like this, we need to ask ourselves, why not? You know. Hmm. Yeah. So so I mean, well, if if I don't have that desire, Pastor Heidi, what what do I do? Well, uh, turn. How do I get heartburn? How do I get heartburn? Well, you go to a restaurant. But um, <laughs> no, I mean, but seriously, though, if we do, if we don't feel this within us, we need to recognize that, you know, we can go to the word. We can go to the places where God has given to us these things and he will be the one who will draw us out to himself. I mean, that is that is ultimately what we need to do. But it, it doesn't hurt for us to, to stop and consider, you know, you know, where am I? That sort of a thing. You know, hmm. so sure, sure. We don't want to, as I've I heard another pastor recently put it, we don't want to let our feelings drive the bus. I mean, it's not right. all about did you have that burning feeling inside of you when the when you heard the word of God, and if not, something's necessarily wrong. We don't want we don't want to let the feelings drive the the bus. But we should expect that when we are in the presence of Christ in His Word and in His sacrament, and He's really there with us as as He promises. We should not be surprised when the heart does burn, when there is that desire to hear him more, to you know have our eyes opened in the in the sacrament, to see him as our savior there. We should expect that. And and if we want to be careful because it's not all about whatever you feel. There are plenty of times where you might not feel as on fire for the Lord as another Sunday. It doesn't mean he didn't come to you. We don't want to let the feelings drive everything, but we should at the same time expect that there will be those feelings, and that's that's good. And what a joy it is! Uh, you know, it's it's okay as as another pastor once told me, it's okay if you've got the joy in your heart. It's okay to let your face show it occasionally. <laughs> Very true, but I mean, and, and maybe maybe another way to be helpful with this is to say we should not confuse the the heart burning within us with just physical feelings because that's yes. always going to lead us astray um what what we should see it as is a a movement within our our union with christ our being you know made like christ and so in that sense it would be you know the the gifts of the spirit those things which are actually making us who we are as christians it's and yes physical feelings are connected to these things i mean god created us to be feeling that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But we shouldn't identify this as a one-to-one. If I'm not feeling it this Sunday, then somehow, you know, this isn't, that it isn't working for me. Mm. I, I really appreciate the way you connected it to the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. That I mean, that very, you know, this is what he is doing in you, and it's not just that physical feeling. That was a really helpful connection. So, Pastor Heidi, when they when this happens, this realization, they recognize Jesus, they're, oh, our hearts were burning, weren't they? So, now all of a sudden, they seem a lot more urgent. <laughs> like, they, they get up and get back to Jerusalem, which a, appears to have been a journey that they had taken all afternoon to to take. And now suddenly, boom, they, they run back to Jerusalem. Tell us about the, the way that this text concludes. <laughs> yeah, they, they go the, what is it, about seven miles back to yeah. Jerusalem. So if, if we think that it's evening by the time that this all happens, they decide at nightfall, they're going to travel back. 
you know, three hours or more to get back to Jerusalem. If, if you're assuming a couple hours on foot, um, you know, miles per hour on foot. So, I mean, they're, they're so driven by what they have experienced that they just cannot wait to tell the others what they have seen. You know, they, they are, they're so excited that they don't even care that it's the middle of the night. They don't even care that this is the most dangerous part of the day to be outside, you know, outside at night, that kind of a thing. They're going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to tell them, this is what we have seen. I mean, yeah. I'm reminded of the of the shepherds on on Christmas, how they went with haste to to see the baby, and then they left and they told everyone. Now these these men go specifically to the eleven and to the others gathered with them, but that similar joy here it's a burning that sent them with haste right then and there. There was no time to waste to tell the good news and and their message. I mean, this sounds like what we say to each other on Easter: the Lord has risen indeed. That they are ready to proclaim this good news. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, maybe this is the beginning of it. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, they, they are so driven because of what they have seen and heard that they, they go to proclaim this message. And I think, again, I keep tying this back to Pentecost for a reason, because this is the same kind of drive that we will see the whole church experiencing after the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, they cannot help they cannot help but tell what they have seen and heard. I mean, that's what Peter himself even says. You know, we mm. we and it does. I'm sorry. Oh no, I'm saying go ahead. I, we have to say these things. That's that's what I was going to say. Well, and, and I, I was going to point out how, how it does here, their proclamation to the 11 centers on the Lord's resurrection, which is very much the proclamation that the apostles give in the book of Acts. It always comes back to Jesus, you killed him. God raised him. It, it always comes back to that central proclamation. Jesus is risen from the dead and all the implications. You see the very beginnings of that here at the end of Luke 24. Pastor Ray, we got about a minute and a half left. Help us to wrap this text up. Give us the good news from this text on the road to Emmaus. Well, I mean, the good news, of course, is that Jesus is risen, right? I mean, the, the joy of the these two disciples and the joy of the whole church following the gift of the Holy Spirit and the day of Pentecost itself is knowing that Jesus is alive. And I mean, if that, if that is something that doesn't just set us on fire, you know, if it's something that doesn't set our hearts burning, you know, we, we should ask why, but we can see that in that moment, Jesus is alive and it drives them forward to proclaim that good news just as we continue to do today. Pastor Zelwyn Heidi is pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He's also one of the hosts of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken, helping us today with Luke 24, verses 13 to 35. Pastor Heidi, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I am your host here on Sharp Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. In just a few short days, April 21st through 23rd, KFUO will be celebrating share That's your opportunity to partner with us in this worldwide outreach of Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Please join us to hear the good news of Jesus Christ on that day and to support this proclamation of the gospel. Thanks for spending the morning with us today. Talk to you again tomorrow.